Welcome to Respond to Resilience, along with my co-host, Bonnie Rumley, LCSW, EMTB. I'm David Dashinger. And on this episode, we'll be speaking with authors Barbara Rubel. She's the director of Grief Work Center. And Jason Palomara. He's uh, her co-author of the upcoming book, Living Blue. Our topic will be police wellness and resilience. We invite you to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Respond to Resilience. We're on Facebook on the Respond to Wellness Inc. page. Also on bbsradio.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our website with all past episodes is respondertv.com. We'll be back to have a great conversation with Barbara and Jason right after this. In this family, more of us die by our own hands than by the hazards of the job. In this family, up to a quarter of 911 dispatchers have symptoms of PTSD. In this family, our mental health and wellness are in crisis while responders are quietly suffering. In this family, many struggle with job-related stress, burnout, trauma, sleep disruption, substance abuse, and marriage problems. In this family, we can help the helpers with vital information and resources, resilient strategies, and success stories of overcoming the obstacles. In this family, no one is alone. Welcome to Respond to Resilience with co-hosts, retired Lieutenant David Dashinger, Dr. Stacy Raymond, and Bonnie Wimley, LCSW EMTB. So we'd like to welcome Jason Palomara, Barbara Rebell to Respond to Resilience. A little bit bit of their background, Jason is a U.S. Navy veteran and retired New York City Police Department cold case homicide detective. Jason has served as a peer support counselor with the NYPD, and he's been a recent guest with us on Respond to Resilience, talking about his role as director of veteran and first responder engagement for Forge VFR. Jason's currently writing a book on police wellness and resilience with Barbara Rubel. Barbara is a leading authority and award-winning author on burnout, secondary traumatic stress, compassion fatigue, and vicarious trauma. As a nationally recognized keynote speaker and trainer, she motivates law enforcement officers and victim service providers to focus on wellness and resilience. She was featured in an Emmy award-winning documentary and is the author of But I Didn't Say Goodbye, Helping Families After Suicide, and a 30-hour CE course for nurses on loss, grief, and bereavement, and another CE course on COVID-19 loss, grief, and bereavement. Barbara's website is barbarubel.com, and we'd like to welcome Jason and Barbara. How are you? Thank you. It's nice to see you back, Jason, and nice to meet you, Barbara. Thank you. Um, So I was curious, Jason, how did you and Barbara meet, and why did you begin writing this book together? Great question. Um, I read, but I didn't say goodbye. Uh, that was during the time I was a peer support member with the NYPD. Um, after reading it, I said, I have to reach out to her. Uh, I think it was via LinkedIn, Barbara. Um, to my surprise, she responded pretty immediately. Um, and over the, the, the course of that exchange, I, you know, I always had this idea that I wanted to write, um, uh, something in support of mental health and wellness for first responders, you know, going through my, my time on the job, I, I wanted to give back. Um, and I had this idea and I said, well, I should just say no. Uh, but she didn't. Uh, and that's what brings us to today. I, uh, you know, just, uh, reached out and said, I, I think I'd like to, to write a book. Would you like to do it with me? And she accepted. 
Well, Barbara, I'm curious about this because um, it seems like you do um, have a deep interest in law enforcement officers and, um, you know, certainly they're struggling with a number of different issues these days. So what what kind of brought you into that area? What What attracted you to it? My dad was a sergeant in New York City. He was a police officer, and my mother was also a police officer, one of the first law enforcement officers in New York City in the 60s. And they met and fell in love. And after his retirement, like too many police officers, he ended his life. He had deteriorating discs in his back, and his suicide note said he couldn't live with the pain. And too many law enforcement officers live with pain, whether physical, as in my father's case, or mental and they end their life. And so my goal in life, my my life's work, my passion is to make sure, to ensure that law enforcement, fire, uh, first responders, essential workers stay healthy so they can continue doing the job. Because if we lose these individuals, then who's going to take care of us when there is a fire or a crime or or with any situation or critical incident? So I'm very passionate about making sure they stay healthy, their wellness, their resilience, and their well-being. We thank you, Barbara. So just to stay along the lines of the book, we're very, very intrigued by this and, of course, want to read a copy right when it comes out to print. Um, have there been any challenges that you faced, Jason, or difficult parts of writing this book and trying to capture the words? Um, challenges, the first thing that comes to mind uh, is in, in, in recounting some of the uh, situations I describe in the book. I didn't realize uh, how it would really uh, affect me. You know, it kind of brought up some, some old feelings. Um, there's one in particular. Uh, I was a rookie, rookie cop, and uh, rookie detective, m- more specifically. And uh, we responded to a, a job of, uh, uh, you know, a dead infant. And I, I won't get into the details, but you know, we left that job, and it was very matter of fact. Off to the next one, actually, off to breakfast, and then off to the next job. Uh, there was no, there was no debrief. There was no, hey, how did that make you feel? There was no. Um, is there anything, you know, you want to talk about, you know, nothing, there was no, there was no talk of, of that job. It stayed with me and I didn't realize how strongly it stayed with me for so many years uh, until I started writing about it. And I realized how emotional I had gotten Uh, at that time. I had young, young children, um, which probably played uh, a part in how I felt and why it stuck with me for so long. Um, but yeah, that that was that that's it. That was a challenge in, in talking about and writing about some of the things that I was writing about, uh, bringing up some of the old feelings. Well, Barbara, um, this is sort of a common theme where you know many of us who are or have been responders have been to calls that we never really totally get the process, or we don't even know what the resources are to help us through it um, to properly and in, in health you know, in a healthy way. Um, debrief and, and kind of diffuse whatever the, the feelings are. What, what do you see? What do you, um, what do you find is working and what do you find is missing in terms of how leadership is, is um, providing resources for the rank and file? I, I'll 
When I just got back from Fargo, where I did the keynote, I opened up the conference for the uh, Midwest Summit for Women in Law Enforcement. And so it was a two-hour kickoff conference on, on burnout and compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma and secondary traumatic stress. And then I did a training just for brass, just an hour on what do leaders need to know? How do we create wellness programs? What do we need to focus in on? But what I found in that two-hour period is that most law enforcement officers think they're just burning out. They're stressed out. And they need to be educated and empowered that it's not just burnout. Of course, we understand what burnout is, but it's also secondary traumatic stress. The victim experienced primary traumatic stress. It's also being vicariously traumatized. It's also compassion fatigue, which is a mixture of, you know, burnout and secondary trauma. So when Jason just shared the story of the deceased baby in the vehicle and then no debriefing, no critical incident stress management or any of that back then. He just went home and self-medicated or just, you know, went on to the next job, not realizing that he was traumatized. He's experiencing the same symptoms as perhaps the, the driver of the vehicle. You know, the obsessive thinking, being frozen, not being able to cope, distrust, anger, all that stuff. And what happens to law enforcement officers is they become vicariously traumatized. And when you are vicariously traumatized, you are forever changed cognitively. So when Jason shares the story that happened 10, 15, 20 years ago, what he's sharing is, I was in, in such a place, the symptoms, these cognitive changes, my identity changed as a human being. I no longer felt safe. I no longer, uh, I might question my own abilities. Uh, I may not want to connect to people because you can lose them, lack of control, uh, your sense of self in the world. That's vicarious trauma. And it changes the way you think about the world. So we need leaders and supervisors to get on board to help these law enforcement officers because that's not going to be the only critical incident that they have on the job. Jason, when you think about the things that you went through and how you had to compartmentalize and not process at that time and maybe even in some cases after that time, what are you hoping the book will be able to do for other law enforcement officers after they've read it? What, what would you like to see happen after the book? The, the quick short answer is for them to realize that they are not their problems, that they are not their, their stresses, that they are not their situation that, um, and I, I've, I've said this before and it bears saying over and over again, that we're human beings that happen to be police officers and not the other way around. Um, and when we start to identify as 100% that, um, we, we lose a lot. Um, what, what this book is, is a, a glimpse into my Leo experience and how it, it affected and touched on every aspect of my life. Um, it'll be different from the readers, but it, it, it is just an example on how I navigated my time. And how maybe from my my good examples and my the things that I had done maybe wrong at the time uh, will help you maybe make better steps um, 
And if it helps but one person, it's a success. Um, you know, the late Dallas Willard, he was a professor and director of School of Philosophy at the University of SoCal. He said, lack of information results in everything from unpleasant burdens to stark tragedies across the entire range of human life. So I look back uh, on the information I had or didn't have at that time. And that was a big piece of how I navigated my stressful experiences. And when the information is coming from another Leo, it's it sticks and it's more accepted because of the trust factor, right? We were in this tribe, we're in this this community of people that nobody else can know what, we're, what we know, right? So when the information comes from one of us, it, it's more impactful. So if I can be impactful for at least one, then, then I'm happy. Well, it's also the understanding too, right? So not only are they in your tribe, they know what it's like to walk in your shoes. But if you try to talk about that with another friend who doesn't know what it's like to be in a cruiser, in an ambulance, behind a dispatcher's phone. Um, they, they just cannot fathom the magnitude of what you see in a career and the fact that the frequency of it is so often, right? You were talking about that call before. I mean, you go from one thing that for a civilian would be the most horrific thing they've seen in their entire life. Yeah. You go from that, get a cup of coffee, and then go to another which would be the worst in someone's entire life. And that's just another day at the office for you. And I think I like the fact that you're highlighting that because it gets minimized. And I know all of our colleagues uh, who see this in therapy, I see it in my office. What first responders do is consistently minimized by, by the first responders, but also by the others around them. And I, I like the fact that you're shining that light on the magnitude. I think if I could just follow up real quick, I think we as Leos minimize it because maybe we're afraid to, to, yeah. to, to do the opposite, right? We want to keep those experiences in our blind spots. Uh, Cause if we, we, we entertain them, you know, it's, it could be uncomfortable. And I say we get uncomfortable to get comfortable. Uh, and I stayed uncomfortable for a long time uh, until I said that I, I can't do it anymore. So I have to get uncomfortable. Not knowing what the, what the end result was going to be. Um, but yeah, sometimes we do minimize it. Our mission at Responder Wellness Inc. is to subsidize or provide free of charge safety equipment and wellness services to first responders, including police officers, firefighters, EMS personnel, and 911 operators throughout Connecticut. Resources include scholarships to train new EMTs, a responder and veteran-only AA group in Danbury, Connecticut, as well as police vests, a fire and EMS boot program, yoga classes, gym memberships, and t-shirts. The founder of Responder Wellness, Inc., co-leads a peer support group sponsored by Fairfield County Trauma Response Team. Responder Wellness, Inc. is a nonprofit 501c3. Find us on the web at responderwellness.org, on Facebook at Responder Wellness, Inc., or email us, responderwellness at gmail.com. Responder Wellness, Inc., putting responders first. So, Barbara, um, love to go a little deeper with uh, what you were just saying about working with department leaders um, and how occupational exposure to vicarious trauma is affecting responders. What are some practical tools and 
things that you uh, share in your trainings that uh, you might be able to pass along to our listeners? Well, I did a deep dive into the research before I did this presentation in Fargo a couple of weeks ago. And what the research points to with LEOs in particular is the have to focus on physical fitness, so important. And when I shared this particular slide all about physical fitness and all that, someone raised their hand and said in their department, they implemented a brand new thing where an hour a day, an LEO can go to the gym. They can come in an hour later. They can come leave an hour earlier or stay extra hour at lunch and have two hours. That is amazing. So physical fitness, also stress management, teach them how to manage their fight and flight and all that, you know, stress stuff. Um, focus on mental health, alcohol and substance abuse, nutrition and diet. These are the foundations. And then your department goes from there. But we need to make sure that supervisors talk openly about wellness and resiliency to basically give them permission to talk about it because a lot of them are um, type where they're not going to. But we need to open that up to peer-to-peer -peer support, being a good listener, and, and knowing how to, to spot mental health needs and substance abuse and suicide ideation and, and train leaders to connect with their workers to the resources. I think, you know, Jason mentioned this before, how, you know, we, it's too much, you know, we, be, before we got on this podcast, he was sharing how when, when he needed support and he went online, there was just, where do you go? So it's so important to train the leaders, the sergeants, the detectives, the, the, the brass to connect their workers with the right resources based on the culture of their department. Also, off-site support, telehealth, support groups, counseling, therapy that works with law enforcement. And we must be mindful that the wellness program has to fit with the department culture. That's so important. And and know the perception among peers. You know, they're labeled as broken because um, I, I, I asked them. So this was all just from the last presentation. Mm -hmm. I'm labeled as broken. I don't want to be a problem. I, I, I'm losing my identi identity if, if they take my gun away. You know, confidentiality, privacy is important. But we need to all be on the same page about wellness and resiliency on the force. Yeah, I love what you're saying, because um, we've touched on this before, but really giving the leaders uh, the training and the resources and, and knowing when they one of their uh, people that they're supervising comes to them with a problem or they notice a problem that they know what the proper resource is, because um, it's it's just it's mandatory. It should be as mandatory as doing um, some of the training we do as police, fire and EMS. Yes, I was wondering, Barbara, when you're in front of the brass, do you get a sense uh, for the fact that they understand they are the living, breeding model and embodiment of what their department is expecting of the inferiors? Do you think that they, they look at themselves and realize that they really are the model? So if they're not taking care of themselves and they don't talk about things and they don't talk about their struggles at all, and it's this facade of strength, do you think they realize that? They do realize it, but I think there's a lot of fear, anxiety, and worry. And they really need to be together in a group, sharing their own common um, 
situations at home where they feel safe and confidential exposure, like talking to another chief, because I had a lot of chiefs in the room. So chiefs talking to other chiefs about their own issues and just giving each other permission as human beings that we need to take care of ourselves and then show those who work with us, how we are caring about our own wellness and well-being, how we're building our resiliency, how we're using our strengths and model that behavior. And um, I even I asked some of them, would you share with anyone that you were seeing as a psychotherapist, a therapist, a social worker? And they said, no, but I would give them permission to go and give them information about it, but I wouldn't self-disclose. So I thought that was interesting. Well, Jason, let's. Um, I wanted to touch on an article that you wrote. Um, it was called "Suicide in Law Enforcement," and um, you mentioned a book. Uh, sounded fascinating. It's called "Trauma and Recovery" by Judith Herman, MD. Um, and you cited a passage in there that when there's no thought of the future, it keeps one relegated to their current state, and that in enduring one's pain, we create the misbelief that there's no end in sight. Can you talk a little bit about how Leos have? feelings like loss of control and hopelessness and how does that all play into the, um, the picture of suicidality? Great question. And I appreciate you asking it um, because we're supposed to have all the answers, right? Or at least that's our belief. Mm-hmm. Um, we're supposed to respond to a scene. We write a summons, we make an arrest, we mark the job somehow, right? We move on to the next one. We, we've definitively solved that issue in, in whatever way we, we did. Um, when we don't have the answers, in my opinion, to our own problems and our own stressors, we too often blame ourselves, right? Well, I, I'm supposed to have the answer. I'm the fixer. I'm the helper, right? Um, people come to me for help, uh, and I don't have that answer. It's real easy to to then, you know, when we're blaming ourselves to to, to to call it a day, to say goodbye, right? Because to further that, when we feel that not only do we not have the answers, but because we don't, that we're the reason, we're the, we're the cause of the stress in our family's life, right? And they maybe be better off without us creating all that stress. Um, you know, we, we, we talk about some of the, the instances in the book um, that I write about. Um, and I would come home and it wasn't the baby, for example. It wasn't like, hey, hon, you know, guess what I did today? right? I didn't want to tell her about it. So what do I do? I, I isolate myself, self-medicate, um, you know, elbow, uh, elbow therapy or whatever you want to call it. Um, I, uh, you know, I, 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 I stay in my own world. Right. And that just, that just builds and builds and builds. So, um, you know, when you talk about enduring one's pain, uh, that, that pain can be sometimes very unbearable. Um, and that momentary, uh, that, that irrational decision, uh, that's so permanent is, is that's, that's not, um, easily seen in that moment. Thanks, Jason. Barbara, do you see what Jason just said as a common theme in your work? Absolutely. It is absolutely. And that's why we really need to focus on how Jason and other law enforcement officers can make meaning out of their their job, out of the tragedy, the critical incidences, the the death, the trauma, the crime, the children suffering. How do you how do you make meaning in that? And that's when you make meaning, you are compassionate 
to yourself. You know, you're showing yourself self-compassion. So what I, if I was working with Jason, I would say, Jason, share your, your job narrative with me. What does your job as a law enforcement officer mean? You know, I would want him to reflect on his beliefs, his values, his worldview, so he doesn't die by suicide. So he stays healthy and a husband and a, and a father and a member of his community, you know? And so how do you, how do you do that? You know, just consider how your role as a law enforcement officer impacted your life, whether you are retired, as Jason is, or or you're just starting out, just got out of the academy. You know, it's your family bonds. Maybe your family means more to you now than ever, or you value your relationships with your buddies. You appreciate their support, or you experience personal growth. You have changed priorities because of what happened. It's, it's truly about making meaning of of your narrative and and then being kind to yourself when you think I, I should have done something differently or I why didn't I do that or I could have said this it, it's about being being self-compassionate being kind to yourself it's all Kristen Neff's work on just recognizing that you're human and being self-kind so understand that aspect of your personalities don't be critical don't be judgmental um you're a human being yes you, you made a mistake or you could have done something differently but we're connected to other other people other law enforcement officers other firefighters other educators or whomever in the community who also might have screwed up you know and and just be be mindful, you know, keep it in a balanced view and, and live your life like in the light rather than in the darkness. Just be compassionate, find meaning in your, in your, in your life and know that you're, you're doing the best that you can with a very, very difficult situation day after day after day. Thank you, Barbara. That's uh, profound. And, you know, it makes me think of um, something I heard early in my career and that's, you know, as first responders, we really have one chance to get it right. And, you know, very few times we have the opportunity to rethink it, do it over. And so it makes us even more self-critical when we perceive that we've made a mistake or did, didn't do it right. Um, so it just makes it raises the bar that much more for us uh, to, uh, to lighten up and be in the light rather than the dark. Fairfield County Trauma Response Team is a nonprofit alliance of mental health professionals dedicated to helping first responders heal from trauma, tragedy, and stress. We help as they manage community crises and the everyday demands of ensuring public health and safety. Established in 2011, FCTRT was formed in response to a call for emotional help from the Stanford Fire Department after a traumatic fatal fire. Less than a year later, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting occurred, and members again served the first responder community. Most recently, COVID-19 created a need for our support. We provide free educational presentations, pro bono sessions to deal with community disasters, and an extensive referral service to trauma-informed psychotherapists. If you're a responder in Fairfield County and need help dealing with duty-related stress, please reach out to us so you can continue to do the job you love. Visit our website at fctrt.org or find us on Instagram at Fairfield County TRT. Jason, you're really a master at sort of having the macro view of a career. Um, you know, you kind of look at the the whole arc of it from probie to retirement, and um, and that there's actually an evolution of the self 
from the beginning of the career to the end. Can you talk a little bit about that, um, the, the concept of self and how that changes over time? Absolutely. Um, I just want to touch on something Barbara said about how do we do that. Um, and it, and it, and it plays into, you know, that arc of your career is making it familiar, right? Sharing life experiences, which is what this book is, is making, you know, we talk about break down that stigma, right? Sometimes we don't even know we need help. You can tell me to ask for it and that's great. And I will, I'll let you know if I do, but I don't even know I do sometimes. We don't know that we need to ask for help. Uh, so when you start out as a, a, a civilian, you enter the police academy, Right. You're going to go through that arc you talk about uh, and you're going to learn the good ways of doing things, the bad ways of doing things, productive, un- nonproductive. And you're going to you're going to develop around that world uh, like we do in any job. Um, but when you 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 know, I, I talk about it in the book about, um, you know, uh, my wife would tell me that, you know, all my friends were, were Leo's. To, well, it was true. Because I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't find. Not that I uh, actively tried to. I couldn't find those besides, you know, my some grammar school friends, uh, my military friends. Um, I couldn't find any that could relate to what I was going through. So I, I further creep into that that bubble, right? And now you get to the end of that arc, and you're retired, and you leave. And I think we we talked about this once, David. I, I you know, you, we look in the mirror. Who are you, right? It, it, that person's unfamiliar to us, right? Um, it's different from what we've what we've been used to for the past 20, 30 years. My partner, uh, Steve, retired after 40 years. Um, so imagine that. Imagine, you know, leaving after that that amount of time and having to relearn who you are again. That's a scary place. And that's where we see a lot of um, Leos at that point um, die by suicide. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it covers the entire arc, because if you start talking about it on day one, Throughout, up until and through retirement, it's not unfamiliar. Unfamiliar, scary. So that's part of what this book is, uh, and many like it, is making it familiar through a shared life experience. My colleague Stacy and I run a weekly peer support group for all first responders, and this topic comes up a lot about the importance of having friendships and interests outside of being a law enforcement officer or police, fireman. Um, it becomes, these jobs become so much of your identity. And dare I say, the, ma- the vast majority and percentage of your personality is that. So it's really, really important to find those other ways to still be human and connect with the world, not just in preps for retirement, because that that is a huge consideration. Now this person's losing 80%, 90% of who they are, you know, when they leave an office or a department. Uh, but we try to get them to think about it too for just the longevity of their career and from the mental health aspect. It's not healthy for anyone to be in any profession 24 hours a day. Um, it takes a toll. And, and that's what you're speaking of with the family and the kids and isolating from your spouse. Because um, even when you're not on duty, your brain is still on duty. Yeah. I mean, when I was in cold case, um, I'd, li- I'd be lying if I told you I didn't think about those cases every second of every day that I was not at work. But, you know, at work is one thing. When I was home, it was what am I doing next? Um, I probably wouldn't change it uh, because I feel I felt that that's where the success came um, was just being so engrossed in every 
piece of the case. Uh, but there was a toll. There was a toll that it took on me and a toll that it took on my family. Um, and that's what, you know, officers need to understand is that uh, they can be great at their job. They can also be great off the job. They can be great husbands. They can be great wives. They can be great fathers. Um, it, it is possible. And when all you know is that, um, you know, they say you're the sum of your, what, the five people you spend the most time with, right? If all you spend your time with is that world, um, you know, it, 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 it takes a toll. Barbara, um, I wanted to jump to an interesting term that you've mentioned. It's compassion satisfaction. Um, we also have talked about, um, recently we talked about the numbing out and burning out that many LEOs experience as well as other responders. Can you talk about compassion satisfaction and how that relates? Yeah. Well, we understand job satisfaction. We love our job as, as a law enforcement officer, a firefighter, whatever you're as an essential worker, whatever it is you do, you love your job. But when you are satisfied with the level of compassion that you give to a victim, client, patient, then that mitigates the impact of compassion fatigue. So compassion satisfaction, I'll give you a perfect example. I was working as a hospice bereavement coordinator many years ago. It was the week of September 11th, as a matter of fact, and the patient was actively dying. And I'm holding her hand and her husband, who's about 90 years old, um, is holding the other hand and he screams out, she's dying. What do I say? What do I say? And I say, tell her you love her. Hearing is the last to go. She, hold her hand. She can feel your presence. She can hold your hand. To just talk to her. And he was talking to her and telling her how much he, he loved her. And then she took her last breath. Now, in that moment, my compassion fatigue could have been through the roof. But it wasn't because my level of compassion satisfaction was so high. So it mitigates that impact. So as a law enforcement officer, we have to consider when we enter the home after domestic violence or we are on the scene after a sexual assault or, or a major crime where people are killed, all, all hell is breaking loose. But if we are compassionate, if we are empathetic, if we are caring, if we are doing our job well with a situation that's really bad, then our compassion satisfaction increases and our level of compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma decrease. Can we do that on a you know, say much smaller scale, let's say we go to a, you know, someone's having a difficulty breathing and they just need a ride to the hospital. Is there, you know, on less sort of traumatic call, is there a way we can have compassion satisfaction? 
Absolutely. As human beings, we know that we are doing good, that we are in a helping role, that again, we're being empathetic. We are caring, we are compassionate, we are doing our job and providing some assistance and help in the aftermath of some type of trauma. Whether that trauma is a small trauma or a large trauma, it's still a trauma. You know, however we define that, that stressor in that, that, that person's life, we are there to help. So move into the satisfaction you feel as a helper. However, I do a lot of conferences for nurses, and many of them are sharing with me that they're experiencing moral injury. And what that means is that they want to do more. They know they have to do more, but they can't with what they have. So we're impacted by so many things. I think the bottom line is we just have to do the best we have with the situation at hand. You know, I'm sitting thinking about what you're saying and thinking that first responders in general always want more, more, more. Like what is going on right now just isn't enough. You know, the fact that I helped that one person, it's not enough because I could have done more for them. So if we could encourage police and all other first responders to look at what's done on a daily basis and to feel happy with what you did do and stop always focusing on that what I didn't do and the more 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 thing but what you mentioned that happy happy that laughter laughter and joy is so important laughter reduces anxiety it reduces stress we know that humor increases mental well-being it lowers levels of loneliness less headaches cognitive flexibility you know the list is endless we need to have a sense of humor. Now, during my programs, it's a five-minute activity. I give everyone this toy. It looks like a straw. It has a helicopter on top, and they go like this, and they fly around the room. (laughs) Everybody laughs, and they have so much fun. It's a five-minute activity. Why do I do that? Because I explain to them, look, we're talking about homicide, co-victims, suicide, trauma in the workplace. That's my thing. I'm a thanatologist. And yet, for five minutes, we took the time out to have fun. If we could just make sure that we find moments of joy, moments of awe, moments of spirituality in our day, while we we are continually bombarded by crisis and loss and trauma and crime, uh, we're going to be okay. And I think we need to just start with being okay and then move up from there. Great stuff. And, um, yeah, I love this, you know, recurring theme that, um, you know, sometimes just start with the small, you know, very accessible ways to to shift into a positive space um, because uh, these are things that it's really like a microcosm of life, feeling feeling joy, feeling happiness, connection, satisfaction, um, and, and reconnecting to the purpose why we got into this profession in the first place. Um, to me, that's one of the most... Um, disturbing things is that, you know, we get into it for really pure motives. I think most people want to become a cop or firefighter or paramedic to be of service. And then somehow down the line, we lose touch with that uh, pure purpose, but we can, we can also reconnect with it. So um, thanks for, thanks for all the work you do, Barbara, because it's, uh, it's so much needed. Thank you. But you know what you're saying is that law enforcement officers move into their career because of their personality, because of their character traits. They are Mm -hmm. a unique human being. And so we need to focus on their strengths. And 
look at what strengths did you have when you went into the academy? And now through your career, are you still using those strengths? Are you careful? Are you brave? Are you determined, self-control, kindness, skillful? How do you put those strengths into practice? How did you put them into practice when you first became a cop? And how are you continually keeping those strengths in the forefront rather than focusing on your weaknesses? Use your strengths, put them into practice, and I think you'll be okay. Superpowers. Yes. <laughs> yes, because, law, you know, you do know law enforcement officers wear a cape. I do have those throughout my training, all about. <laughs> I have so many slides with capes on it, and, and the cops love them, so I just keep them in. But, we, you know, we have to understand that we, we don't wear a cape. You know, we're, we're more like the Hulk. The Hulk doesn't wear a cape, and he's pretty powerful, right? He just turns green. So I, I think know your strengths, and I think that's a good way to start. Dave, you mentioned be of service. We forget to be of service to ourselves. Hmm. You know, we're first responders, and that's what we need to be for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be of no value to anybody else. I unloaded 32 years of emotion. This job isn't a joke, and it can hurt you. How does yoga or meditation help with that? Coming to terms with who you are. You know, nobody calls us because they're having a good day. It's really the suicide that becomes a huge issue. People are more trustworthy with the dog. Sleep deprivation helps them either be better or worse. Completely secretive when we started this. So it's pretty much taboo. Take care of the people next to you. First responders really being open about what they're struggling with. If we know that, let's raise awareness. Brings you together to talk about it. And it tells you you're not alone. I want to talk a little bit more about the book, um, especially the process, which I find fascinating, having written a book with my wife. Um, I know it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world to do. Sometimes it seems like, well, we'll just, you know, sit down and write a chapter a day or whatever. But um, there's a lot more to it than that. And and it's probably a a much deeper um, sort of journey for a personal journey to write that book. So can you, um, Barbara and Jason, speak a little bit about the process and what was what it was like? Jason, you want to kick it off? Sure. Um, you know, it's it's fascinating. Uh, so this is my first experience in doing this, uh, and I am beyond fortunate to have met and become friends with Barbara. Uh, again, taking me under her wing and showing me the ropes. Um, I didn't know there were multiple types of editors, so I'm still learning as I go along. Uh, but what's really fascinating about this whole process is that we've essentially done it virtually, right? Uh, I don't know how often that happens, um, but it's it's through, you know, being in different states, um, through the limitations of COVID, um, we have done this virtually. So the exchange back and forth uh, has been has been uh, amazing. Um, you know, I, I, I sent to her my stuff and she sends it back and we, we, we volley it back and forth. And we've done this over the over the course of probably a year and a half now about um so it's it's been a fun journey and that's exactly the word i would use because it's ever evolving i'm learning every single day (laughs) as as jason just shared with you it's it is definitely a journey but it's a journey of his life story on the force so he has a chapter about 
when he first started, a chapter with a critical incident, a, cra- a, a chapter where he may be feeling burnout, a chapter where he might be experiencing secondary trauma. And there's several stories or several narratives woven through these several chapters. He, I'm taking his story and then I'm using it as a case study. What can other law enforcement officers, what can the brass, what can sergeants and detectives and and those on the beat, what can we learn by Jason's experience? And then I'm going to share my own insight based on my experience as a family member of cops and as someone who dives deep into the research. What does the research say? How can we have helped him in this situation? What does he need? What can we do for him? What, what, what? Things can we list, what define, discuss, you know, all objectives to help him in that case study. Because I want the reader to see themselves in Jason's experience. But then it's not just a narrative. It is, okay, this is what he needed to do. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to reach out to offices across the country to share their insight and then just insert their comments throughout my research-based response to Jason's narrative. So it's going to be a lot of voices, not just Jason's. Jason's is the story. I'm more of research-based how to help Jason and others like him, and then gain the insight from others across the country who can share something that they find valuable that a law enforcement officer needs to hear. Wow. Powerful combination. It sounds like such a great balance between looking at someone's life as a case study, but then what could be done, you know, along the way. I think that's such a great balance you've come up with and clearly you work really well together. Um, Ah. (laughs) I'm sure that will show, you know, in your finished product. um, I know these things take a long time, one, two, three, five years. Um, They they really do. do. Bonnie, you know, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, as cops, we we wear a gun belt, right? From patrol detectives, you know, not so much, but this book is part of their mental health gun belt, right? And I liken it to that because you, you know, you, you wouldn't, and I talk about it in the book as a, as a silly example, but you wouldn't go out on patrol with no gun. You wouldn't go out on patrol with no nightstick, baton, mace, handcuffs, right? All the other essential tools you need. It's part of your gun belt. Why would you go out in life with with nothing in your mental health gun belt and then expect when stuff happens for you to be prepared? Um, so that that's what this book is. This book is just another tool. It's another tool for you to be better. But Jason, you're preparing the new recruit through your narratives because I've read every chapter, your story, your your the incidents, the, the crime, the loss, the trauma – a new recruit's going to read this and say, wow, is that what's going to happen to me? It might, but at least now you're going to know how to respond in the aftermath. It's not unfamiliar to them. It'll be familiar to them. And if it doesn't happen, fantastic. But if it does, it'll be familiar. It won't be so scary or maybe a little bit less. Mm. So you want them to be armed and ready for what, might unfold in their career and have it not be a surprise. You want them to see that you can go through it. And these are some other options I could have used and for this to really be a tool. Have the information and not need it, then then need it and, and not have it. And if it, if they don't need it, well, the fact that they're better prepared 
will help that the stigma that the destigmatizing asking for help because they're going to be the conduit for others to feel comfortable in reaching out. They're going to say, Oh, okay. Right. And they're going to, they're going to, to, to respond to that example. So um, they may not need it, but they might. Well, Um, you know what? Stephen Covey said, the key is not to prioritize what's on your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. And what we are saying, what Jason and I are saying is, Schedule your own wellness, your own well-being, your own resilience. Read books like this because there are so many books right now for police officers. You know, we're, it, the shelves are filling up with wellness and resiliency because we need to focus in on keeping them in the job and respecting who they are and what they do and making sure that they stay healthy and they go home to their wives and their children and their family members. So important. And when they retire that they're not a shell of themselves. Right. right. Or in my father's case, you know, using a weapon to end his life. We do not want that. When you retire, you need to retire with the honor and respect and belief that, you know, you are resilient. And if you managed 20 years on the job, then you could still manage retirement and who you are in that retirement, family, friends, you know, just, you know, gain a spiritual awareness of your community, give back to the community, volunteer, do, do whatever you need to do to stay alive because you are not alone. It's so important. You are not alone. Amazing um, message. And we really applaud you both for what you're doing. Uh, what an amazing service it is to law enforcement and the other responder professions. So thank you so much for writing this book. And um, Barbara, tell us just uh, what to expect, the title, where we can find it, and when it might be available. I think that it will probably come around Christmas time. And so, so Jason, tell them the title because it's your wife. Please mention your wife, her name, and why we're doing the title. I'm, I'm not mentioning that title. Jason? The, so the title is Living Blue. And why uh, is it Living Blue? It's Living Blue because my wife, Veronica, came up with it. Uh, right. Now I will be able to have a happy wife, happy That's life. That's why I didn't say anything. Thank you very much. I wanted to get that in. It's, it's really all about important. balance. It's all about balance. It's all about, yeah. you know, knowing that our family is has our back. It's a wonderful thing where it has our six. It's, it is it is important to know that when this book comes out, it is going to help so many people. I, I'm online now on LinkedIn. I think I have 200 chiefs that I'm, I'm uh, linked in with. I'm going to make sure every chief gets it. I'm going to make sure that it gets in the hands of, of those who will then read it and then give it to somebody else. That's the best thing you could do with any book. Like I wrote the book, but I didn't say goodbye, helping families after a suicide. If you have that book on your shelf, get it off your shelf, give it to your library, give it to some, hand it to a teacher, a nurse, a social worker. That's the most important thing that we could do when we have books is take the book and then give it to somebody else because you might be saving a life. You never know. Books are so important. We need to share our knowledge. And that's exactly what happened here, right? I want to call out the obvious. I read a book by Barbara. It affected me. I had an idea. We're now connected, writing another, which will help other people. So the power of somebody's words in just one book has the potential to multiply if you allow it. And that's what's happening right now because of one book. And not only one book, one podcast. 
you and I, Jason, are on this podcast today sharing our book, and it's all great, but we don't know who's listening who might have ended their life like my dad, who's saying, you know what, maybe I could rethink this. Maybe I should speak to somebody. We don't know the impact of what we're doing. All we know is that we're supposed to be doing this. And there's powers and spirituality beyond us. And in the long run, I just hope that people listen, they stay healthy, they find joy in life, they have a, a positive attitude, they keep their boundaries, they they stay connected to others, they laugh a lot as much as possible. And, you know, we just need to be self-kind as well. You know, we just incorporate our strengths and we're all going to be okay. And keep Sunday. that curiosity for tomorrow. That's it. Keep that curiosity. That. Yeah, it's great. Well, you guys are great. I, I can't wait to read the book and uh, share it out when it's available. So we'll, we'll keep our, our eyes and ears tuned and you guys let us know. And uh, we'll be happy to share that information as soon as the book is published. Thank you. Looking forward to reading it. Thank you both for your time. Jason, thank you for another hour spent with us. Um, Thank you for having me. You're welcome. You're going to be called a regular from now on. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. A true pleasure. Both of you are doing great, amazing, and important work. And uh, so we look forward to hearing about Living Blue when it's released uh, later this year. Uh, Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Barbara. It's been a real pleasure having this conversation. Thank Thank you both. Thank you for what you do. I'd like to uh, remind everyone to like and subscribe. Our YouTube channel is Responder Resilience. We're on Facebook on the Responder Wellness Inc. page. Also on bbsradio.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And check out our website for all the past episodes and some other information. It's respondertv.com. Until the next time, stay safe, be kind to yourself. Take care.